there's a lot of messy logic that needs to be secured here, especially around verified and unverified email addresses. There are some providers that sometimes return an unverified email address, which is an attack vector if you try and link that to an account that's verified. Um, and yeah, it's it's kind of on a per OAuth basis and, and that stuff all just kind of works at in Clerk. Hello, welcome to the DevTools FM podcast. This is a podcast about developer tools and the people who make them. I'm Andrew, and this is my co-host, Justin. Hey, everyone. Uh, we're really excited to have Braden Sidoti here with us today. Uh, so Braden is the CTO and co-founder of Clerk, uh, and we'll be talking about Clerk today. But before we dive into that, uh, Braden, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? So I'm, I'm Braden. I've, um, I was an iOS developer for a really long time, back iPhone 3G, I think, was the first one that I targeted. And I think an iPhone 4 was the first one I dropped and unceremoniously cracked all over the place. Uh, but I made iPhone apps for a really long time. And as part of that, well, yeah, so I guess I'm just a developer. Worked at worked in consulting, um, worked at uh, a company called Inspirato, and I made their iPhone app. And then I briefly worked at a company called Uber on their iOS team before I started Clerk. Um, and that kind of brings us here brief work history yeah so uh tell us a little bit more about clerk what is it and what are you trying to do with it yeah uh so i guess back four years ago uh as an ios developer people always kind of just uh ask you to make apps for them and i always would get stuck on the authentication piece it was it was and i feel like still is unnecessarily challenging not only do you need to figure out how any given tool works. It does feel like you need to learn about the security model of the internet in order to use them properly. Um, and that's when you're just trying to build something quickly. That's not what I really wanted to do. I just wanted something that worked and I wanted to know that it was secure, that I was following the right patterns. So um, I actually co-founded Clerk with my brother and I originally went to him asking him two things, like one, how can I do this really quickly? And two, why is this so hard to do? Cause he's kind of more the web guy. Um, and so we just kind of started there and, and what it's turned into is, you know, another kind of authentication provider, but with an extreme focus on developer experience and making it really quick to get up and running, uh, while also having all of the features you need for, uh, at, at scale at, with bigger companies. So at the time, what were the the options that you had? Cause Clerk provides a pretty like packaged experience where like you as a front-end dev, you really don't have to care about any of the parts of it. What were your options before that? Yeah, so I think the options are pretty similar to what they are today. Like there's two, there's one major incumbent, um, as I see it, uh, that most developers will lean towards, and that's Alt-Zero. Um, they have a very similar offering. You go to their kind of website, they will talk about it as the same way, in the same way as Clerk. And then the other option is open source and just building this yourself. Those were the two options, and even when using Auth0, it you still have to do, you still have to learn about how the web security works in order to do it, or how the iOS security works. The way that uh, they Auth0 kind of works is, you give it an email password. This is very very basic. Obviously, they have a ton of features, but you give it an email password, it returns back a token, and then you do with that token whatever you want to, and the rest is kind of onto you. Open source, you know, has different. Uh, models as well usually 
there's a number, well, usually it, the data ends up getting dumped in some database that you control, uh, and it has your user data in there and your session data, and it's kind of on you to extend everything beyond there. And there's quite a number of very powerful open source tools. Where kind of Clerk comes into play is, is that, I guess the major difference, it's easier to talk about it in terms of OSIRO, the major difference is we pull in the session management piece, which has a lot of implications for how authentication works and more holistically user management could work and how a service could interplay with your application that you're kind of building locally or in production. Um, so that's kind of the extra piece that we added that, that unlocks a lot of additional functionality. We uh, talked to uh, James in an earlier episode and he had the, uh, he had the opinion that like, you shouldn't have a user's table. You should just like rely on something like a system to manage that. And you're talking about, about like pulling in the session layer here, which is a, a big part and, and sort of can be more complex than you think it can be. Uh, but also I could see people say, well, like, you know, if I'm using a, a given session layer, then I lose some control over my setup. Uh, so how do you sort of pitch that? And, and what are the benefits you ascribe to like taking over the whole session layer? So I actually think it's easier and taking over the user table is definitely a lot more thorny and not something that is even recommended for everybody. Like that's not the, like, I think the world will go there in five years type of thing where just like you're not controlling your Postgres database, you're throwing it on GCP or planet scale or whatever. Um, the user's service holistically can also be offloaded in a, in a similar manner where you don't need to have all that data in your specific database, which in this case is already hosted on someone else. So it's like, we're, we're kind of moving towards that world anyway, where your data as a company is in the cloud. And, and this is kind of the next, it feels like to me, the next extension of that. And then that's with the user data, the session data, nobody really wants to handle at all. Like there's not much, like if it just worked, I don't think anyone would complain. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing is it, is it just, People will ask us about it when something goes wrong, but for the most part, there's a pretty standard way. Well, we, we think there's a, there's, there's a right way to do it. There's the huge debate between like what, HTTP-only cookies and JWTs and how do you handle them? Uh, HTTP-only cookies are much better, or well, they're more secure and they're resistant to XSS attacks and the JavaScript, JavaScript doesn't have access to them. So the way our session management works is there's a long-lived HTTP-only cookie and that HTTP only cookie has the right to create these short-lived JWTs. And then those short-lived JWTs, you know, are, are stateless and have all the information you need. And those can get sent anywhere like your backend. And then your backend can, with zero latency, decode it and know that, know with confidence that the user is not being spoofed. It's the, the user that, the user that ma is making the request is the one that has that token. Um, there's some trade-offs there, but that's kind of how the that's the the best kind of approach here. You get the benefits of JWTs and the benefits of cookies while still being able to do things like session revocation and uh, you know force logging out people in case of security incidents and and stuff like that. Um, and I guess from the front end perspective, you have a you know current user function and it just everything else is abstracted away and you know who the current currently signed in user is and, and same within your backend that may have been very long-winded <laughs> uh hopefully that made sense uh, session management it's like something that you would think would just kind of be a part of the api and then it's like in my experience a part 
of my apps that just is always buggy. Like I've had, I built a like GitHub activity monitor and I built it on like Next.js auth and authentication works, but then it logs me out every like hour or so. And like me wanting, I don't want to write that code. That's not the code I want to write. And having a service that unlocks that is is really big. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's some other messy security things in there as well. Um, one of the features that Clerk has that we built in really early on that like pretty much no one uses, I feel like, or not very many people use, uh, that was a pain to build is multi-session applications, or I think we came up with a better name. Basically, it's Gmail. You have that little like user, we call it a user button, and you can switch between different users that are signed in on the same browser. Uh, as far as the session management goes, in which that was kind of a pain to build, and there were... You know, there's implications like session fixation attacks. Uh, I think that's the main one where you have kind of to rotate a token whenever that session changes, uh, especially when going from a sign into a actual session. What other ones are there? There's kind of a bunch of just messy things like that that aren't fun to code, especially when you know you're trying to build like an application and you know you're not you're not doing anything novel here. You're making a sign in page and you're making session and, and you just kind of want it to work. Yeah. From my experience, especially as a front-end dev, I just want things to work. And when it comes to security, it's like the most frustrating thing. And I'll be the first to admit, I am like way too free with my security. Like I've literally shipped RSA keys and NPM packages because it was just easier. So having a service that thinks about all of these details so I don't have to is big game changer. Because like that multi-account thing, I have no idea where I would start with something like that. Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, we thought more people would care about that feature, <laughs> but it turns out it's like kind of niche, uh, a niche thing like Gmail has it and maybe there's a few others out there, but that's really it. Uh, and there's, a, you know, a ton of different ways to model it. Um, but the, the most, uh, the simplest one is like you have your device, your device can have one active sign in, one active sign up, and it can have many sessions and each of those sessions represents a user. And that's kind of that modeling. And then, you know, your user has some modeling as well. Um, and I think where a lot of things get messed up is if you don't start with that modeling, because you don't need it in the beginning. Uh, how do you switch to that modeling? And that that's where things get really messy. And it's just a big time sink for adding some feature that, that you, some maybe that like doesn't feel like it's core to your main product or whatever that product may be. I could imagine if you're working on like a Twitter clone or something that might be really valuable and switching between different user accounts, like potentially shared accounts and stuff. I think this like goes to the deeper point here though, that it's really easy to screw this stuff up. Oftentimes you think of like, you know, especially if you're, you're kind of, you're scrappy and you're trying to build a product, you're like, what is the MVP of auth? What, what is the least amount that I need to do here? And even if you do it right, uh, you can get in a situation where something that you didn't think about is suddenly a problem. So, for example, there's a security incident and you need to force log everyone out, but you like didn't you you made design choices that makes that not possible, which is really easy to do. It's that time of weekend to thank our sponsors. This week we're sponsored by Raycast. If you don't know about Raycast, it's an awesome app for Mac that replaces Spotlight. If you ever wanted Spotlight to do a whole lot more, Raycast is the answer. With all the extensions that it has, you can make it do whatever you want and fit whatever workflow that you want. You could even build your own extensions with a really cool API. It looks just like React. One thing I've been using Raycast a little bit more for lately and recommend to a lot of people 
is their window management. Typically you have to go find some window management software that eventually gets out of date between Mac releases. Raycast's window management is just a feature, so you can use it just like any other Raycast feature right from your keyboard, right when you need it. And if you haven't given Raycast Pro a chance, you should check it out. By now we all know how useful LLMs can be, but going to a website to use them or even just downloading and finding another app to run the LLM through could be a hassle. With Raycast Pro, you have the ability to talk to Raycast AI and get feedback instantly. It's a great while developing and it's kind of replaced Google in my workflow. If you want to hear more about Raycast, head over to Raycast.com or you can go listen to episode 38 where we talk to the CEO, Thomas, about why they created the product and where they intend to go with it. Do you want to advertise with DevTools FM? Head over to devtools.fm slash sponsor to apply. And with that, let's get back to the episode. Uh, and yeah, that that stuff is, is a lot trickier then we definitely give it credit for sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think when we first started, I thought this would be like, oh, well, you know, we'll bang out this auth stuff in like a year and then we'll be able to get onto other things and uh, falling into that same trap as everyone else. But at least we, we, were, we approached it with the mindset of like, we are doing this to the ends and we're deep, like uncovering any every corner of this so that we can build it, right? But it's we're still working on auth features and it's pretty crazy. Yeah, as, as an app developer, like you just want to get a thing that works out there quickly. And then like with an auth system, if it's like, as Justin said, you want this feature now to force log out everybody, you have to now like take basically the base layer of your entire application and try to change it. And then keep doing that going forward as you go like, oh, now we need multiple accounts. So having like a service that's already kind of like thought out the most complex use case so I can use the simple use case really easily is, is a fun tool to reach for. Another thing that I would say is, uh, so we talked to uh, Isaac from NPM recently, and he was talking about um, this this startup that he had helped form semi-recently around like payment operations. And he had made this uh, this sort of thing. It's just like, oh, you know, payments are more complicated than you give them credit for in a similar sort of way. And then they tend to get tied into weird things. Like he had given us specific examples like, oh, well, a developer says, or somebody comes into the business and say, hey, we want to change our revenue model. It's like, well, in order for us to change how we charge, we have to like go mess with the auth system. Uh, and I thought that example was interesting because I think these things that are sort of fundamental to, to making a software business in particular um, tend to be designed just in time and also tend to start coupling to other systems that are also designed just in time to just like get over the hump. And what you end up with is business scenarios like that. So you've made a choice out of, you know, necessity or urgency or whatever, and you've tied systems together or you've like not implemented a feature or whatever. And now somebody comes to you and it's like, yeah, we just need this one small feature. And you're like, this is like fundamental layer stuff that we have to change across our application. Uh, so, you know, I think just further highlighting the point that not only is using a tool like Clerk good for the security benefits and everything that you get out of the box, but also it like, I'm assuming it capitulates up these models really well. So it's like isolated. So you don't hopefully overly tie it to something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's a hundred percent right. And and that is the ideal case that it does. I, I think too, like when Auth0 started and I'm using them as a comparison, they were, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago is when they, when they started. And it does feel like they had to design their system to be more flexible 
because the sign in sign up process was different across different companies. And so they, they were selling to whatever that company is and the company would be like, Hey, this is how we want it to work. And they'd be like, okay, we need to make our system flexible to work for that. And all these other use cases. Um, one of the benefits it feels like we have is that we just look at like you know, GitHub, Google, Facebook, and it's like, all right, there is a consensus here on how this stuff should work. We're going to build that consensus and we're going to try and give it to everybody. Um, and so that's, that's nice. I would also say that this does extend to, uh, especially to B2B SaaS. So I do feel like there is a lot of pain for B2C companies in, in, um, just dealing with identity and, and you'll see pretty much every large company or a lot of large companies that I've talked to have dedicated identity teams of, you know, three to five people, which is, which is pretty crazy. It's you're spending a million dollars a year or whatever it is on an identity team for that login page. Why isn't this service size? And why does every company have that same team? That kind of feels like the, the bigger opportunity, but that's for the B2C app. And then there's also the B2B pain of the organization object. So B2C is like, you get this user object, but now you're building B2B app and you want to invite a coworker to join and you want RBAC, role-based access control, attribute-based access control, whatever access control system you want. Um, and that's like the bare bones of the organization object. Um, the B2B authentication problem does keep going beyond that. Uh, like there's Microsoft OAuth, there's SAML, um, depending on how deep you, you want to go in organizations, like organizations have groups, and then the permissions maybe cascade through all of these. And, and, and kind of the way we're approaching it is, all right, you have your, you know, we did the user object. That was a prerequisite in order to solve this kind of organization object challenge. And, and I think we'll be able to provide more value there. And, and again, look at what we're doing is just looking at all the largest companies. I think GitHub has actually a really great uh, B2B organization groups permissions model. That's like the most advanced one. And that should be able to work for every other company. Uh, even if you're like not using some of the features there. Um, so it's, yeah, even the organization stuff is off stuff is, is off. And then there's SAML, um, which, uh, if you've had the joy of working with is, is, uh, it's great <laughs> and, and, and not intuitive. And, and also there's like a bunch of different versions out there of it, um, they all say it's like, there's like SAML 2.0, but then you have ping identity, then you have, uh which has its own flavor of it. Okta has a slightly different flavor of it. I think they all mostly adhere to the standard, but they're, it's not a super clean standard. And so we, there's like little edge cases they have to code for each of them. But like what you want as, as an app maker selling to some business that's using Okta is ideally it just connects to that organization, whatever role data or permission data structure they have in Okta, you can just ingest into your application and then use that same authorization model in your application. Um, it's hairy to build out and it's not something that can be easily done without having control of that kind of user object because it, at the end of the day, this stuff does get mapped to that user object and, and the authentication and authorization. So that's kind of, I don't know what why I started on this tangent, but that's just like a, a, another set of holistic problems that we're kind of like looking at the industry, seeing who does it best and then trying to give it to everybody. That's, that is incredibly interesting. Uh, so at Oxide, we had to do this same sort of thing and are going battling a lot of these same problems. Uh, so 
Yeah, GitHub model is is phenomenal. Some questions that we've had uh, come up is like for grouping resources is like you know so GitHub is like your your organization and your projects and and like that the domain modeling makes a lot of sense or your your repositories I guess that domain modeling makes a lot of sense for GitHub but like once you get outside of that organization is like is that like two tiered structure like sufficient do you need other things like what does that look like um, and depending on how you implement that, that can be really hard. Uh, and especially if you're like, I don't know, if you have like cascading permissions, like you're saying, and you're doing something like, I don't know. Yeah, no, I would say we're actually punting on a lot of that. So why I used um, GitHub as an example is because they have the organization and then there's the members of that organization, but then they also have groups and all those groups are part of those organizations. I forget if a group can also be can have subgroups, but there's no reason that somebody wouldn't want that structure. And if you just kind of uh, bake that in from the start, it's, it's pretty easy to do. But the repository, that's now application logic, and that's outside of our bounds. Um, it gets really hairy to actually try and help out with anything there. Um, there's a lot of, or there's a bunch of authorization companies that are, are working on this problem. Uh, and they're all, a lot of them, are they, is it Zanzibar? Google Zanzibar type things. Sorry, I don't know. Yeah, there's like, there's AuthZ, I think OsoHQ, and they're all using Zanzibar kind of as a as a model. Uh, we're punting on all of that. Um, we're saying we're going to do the user and what their role is and what groups they're associated to and what organizations they're associated to, and basically everything that we can control on the front end and really split out. Once you start getting into like a repo, which is like application logic or... I think, yeah, just application logic, you need to be deeply embedded in their code base and almost be running a service alongside their service. And that feels too messy. And we can provide a ton of value outside of that while also having like a clear boundary, like this is clerk and it's a box and it works. And then this is your, your application. And um, having that clear boundary, I think is helpful for knowing for making the tool easier to use and just kind of, and also for us knowing where the boundaries of what we're where we're trying to provide value are. Yeah, so I mean and in in practice what that looks like is like you have some application a user makes a request, clerk generates that JWT, it gets sent to the uh, to your backend and it'll have a user ID, maybe it has like admin associated to it and maybe admin has a bunch of permissions associated to it that are just like simple strings. And then from there, that's all that clerk kind of handles. We don't know anything about your application IDs, your repository IDs, in GitHub's case, to connect that back. It's then on on you. Um, Zanzibar does get into that stuff, and it's very, uh, it gets very very hairy, um, and it's a it's a hard problem to solve. The other benefit of this too is that all of that data I mentioned around roles, permissions are the is the minimum amount of data you need to power the front end part that um, our customers and users can see so uh, basically that's kind of how we divvy it up it's like if it needs to be part of the front end and, and control part of this then it's kind of part of this so um, sendgrid i think and other people do this too uh, but they sendgrid has a really nice permissions like it's a role creator and that's the end goal of the rbac stuff is like 
you have like clerk will have to know about all of this, this list of permissions, and then there will be some preset roles, but also the end user will be able to create their new roles based off that set of permissions such that they can kind of do it in a more fine grained way. And that all happens, um, not our, not with, not for our customer, but for our customers end users. Um, and that all happens at the UI level. Nice. Cool. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. I like your guys approach of like doing as little as possible. Like you could have started with organizations and all that, but you chose to get users right first. And it makes sense that the next step in that journey is making organizations right and nothing further. I, I, I definitely agree that like mixing the app logic into the user stuff seems like it's definitely going to a place where you don't want to be. One of the things I found to be most true in software is don't mix primitives when you don't have to, it only leads to pain. And, uh, it seems like Zanzibar would lead to a little bit of pain. I, I've I haven't read it, re read through it myself. I think it's necessary, necessarily complex too, for the problem it's trying to solve. Um, and especially when you're starting like a B2B company, it's like, we're not all Google scale. We don't need Google Zanzibar. And maybe at some point we, you do, but also the role permissions, ABAC stuff is a separate problem from that giant authorization system mm -hmm. that has crazier rules. Um, but yeah, again, I think this is like our kind of our bottom up approach showing here as well. Um, another thing I wanted to, so I, this slipped my mind or, or I wanted to respond is like, I think with development, if you get the data model right, everything else kind of flows really nicely. Um, and I don't know, through like 15 years that, that pattern just keeps like reinforcing itself and, and in, in a good way. And, and, um, yeah, love data yeah, models. 100%. Absolutely. I feel like a lot of times it's like anytime that I either like how I'm modeling the data or how I'm like structuring it, screwing those up early on, like just makes the whole thing worse. And uh, there is some fundamental truth there. This is like, you really have to think pretty hard about that in the beginning, which again, reinforces why the 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 value of like niche niche sort of like service architectures like like clerk i mean because it's like these things are non-trivial they're non-trivial and it's so easy to make one decision up front that bites you in the butt for like the next two years you know until you have that big push to rewrite it or whatever you know or to refactor it and everything and that's uh that's tricky so we, we, we've kind of like alluded to it, uh, but I want to like ask about it in concrete terms. Um, so yeah, as you said, you have Auth0 and a bunch of other competitors. Uh, Clerk does something that's very different than all of those competitors, uh, which is you guys provide a lot of UI components. So uh, when, when did the aha moment of like, oh, we should be a few levels down or a few levels up, depending on your point of view, uh, and provide full UI components instead of just like endpoints. It was pretty early on, I would say like that, that was part of like the V0 of kind of wanting this stuff to work. And I mean, we're not the only ones who provide UI components at all. Like Auth0 has one and, uh, and they also have the, like kind of there's the redirect flow, which I'm sure you've seen where it's like you get redirects to Auth0 and it's not ideal. Um, I think the power of the UI components, it's beyond just the sign-in box and the sign-up box. It's the fact that Clerk knows and does that session management piece. So that means that it has that slash me endpoint that returns all of that user data. So 
power of the UI components comes in like the user profile. And a lot of like actions need to happen on that for the user. So once, you know, you go to Google's account portal and you can add an email address, you can add 2FA, you can add, remove 2FA, you can sign out of other sessions, um, do all of these things. If you don't have that session management piece and this, the third party service, in, in this case, clerk, doesn't know who the signed in user is and, and can't communicate securely to that front end, you can't provide those UI components. Um, so by pulling in that session management piece, Clerk has guarantees around who that user is, and thus you don't have to route a lot of these actions through your own backend. So like a simple example is like with Auth0, say a user like changes their password, um, you have to make a request to your backend saying, hey, this user made this uh, password request change, here's the password payload, and then your backend has to go to Auth0 and be like, hey, this user changed their password, success, and then success, and then it kind of, then you can show it back on the front end. Clerk can just kind of bypass that since we have that session management piece and they can talk securely directly to Clerk's server as like its own standalone microservice. Um, the changing passwords is a very simple example. Um, the more complex ones are, are, again, on that user model and changing usernames, adding email addresses, adding phone numbers, MFA, soon pass keys, um, Whatever exists in those security settings is is something that we can abstract away pretty cleanly. One thing I've been wanting, because uh, I want to build a service that uses this type of feature, is uh, a lot of services allow me to like link accounts. So if I have, uh, let's say, like a TikTok account that I want to link to my my user account and then interact with its API, that whole flow is. <laughs> is not fun to code or to think about like you get into questions about security you're like oh what am i storing when am i storing it when am i refreshing keys there's a whole like can of worms that opens up when you're like i want to connect to accounts does clerk have any plans to address that problem or does it already address it today yeah so we baked that in from the start because it's it's always frustrating it's when you go to sign in and you like type in your email address and it's like it's like, you signed in with Google last. You can't use your email address. And it's like, you know. <laughs> you know it works. Uh, so, yeah, we, we built in, I guess we call it account linking. And so when you sign in with or sign up with Google, and I use Google as the example, we'll go to the user model, say, all right, you have this OAuth account that's linked to this user. And then we'll also take that email address and say, this email address is now also on this account. So it's linked. So the next time you go to sign in, if you type in your email address, it'll just... Uh, It'll, uh, well, you can choose. It depends on the auth settings you have, but it can send, it'll send you an email code because you typed in your email address. You're expecting it to go to your email address. Or you can use the other options you have on the account, like sign into Google. Um, there's a lot of messy logic that needs to be secure here, especially around verified and unverified email addresses. There are some providers that sometimes return an unverified email address, which is an attack vector if you try and link that to an account that's verified. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of on a per OAuth basis and, and that stuff all just kind of works at, in Clerk. And uh, we didn't really get into like the OAuth scopes themselves. Like that's kind of a whole separate problem. Um, and there's like progressive OAuth of, all right, you're signed in, you want the bare minimum permissions for the, or you signed up, you want the bare minimum permissions for sign up. Let's say you're building some like Gmail app or something and you need to request access to that user's Gmail. Um, that's a, like a progressive auth flow that you then need to reconnect, refresh the token, 
I actually don't even fully remember how it works. It's like there's a refresh token, access token, and then um, this is something we haven't tackled with perfectly with the oscopes, just because it is really hairy and it's also kind of more niche. Of what happens when the when you remove permissions from the OAuth provider side. So say you gave this some random application uh, access to your Gmail account and you're like, no, I don't want to do that. But you remove it from your Google account. Uh, your app needs to somehow get in sync and, and know that, okay, this person now no longer has access and we need to request access again if they're going to continue using the app. Um, that logic we don't have baked in yet, but it's it's kind of in the same vein of like, can we make the OAuth and connecting to these accounts easier, um, being this authentication author, authorization layer? So yeah, it's like all of these things are they're nitty gritty. They're 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 gross. They're big, uh, and oftentimes you just kind of want them to work. You don't want to deal with the difference between Google and Microsoft and whatever else if you're trying to build your your email tool. Just anecdotally, uh, I'm hearing a lot more about Clerk recently, and I know that y'all have been growing, especially in like usage. Uh, so congrats on that. I mean, it seems like y'all are hitting a really good spot. Um, but, you know, achieving scale is hard, for sure. Um, I, I, I'm sure that you, <laughs> you know that better than most. Uh, so... What steps do you have to take to make sure that, you know, Clerk could scale out to all this new usage? Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe we got kind of lucky with some of the scaling issues. Actually, I know we did. Um, like we did a very key database upgrade at one point that could have been a lot messier. Um, and we still have a lot of work to do kind of on the scaling stuff. But core to what we're working on, authentication, it's it's like we're almost... People see us as infrastructure layer. Like if we kind of go down, it's disastrous for um, our customers because we do affect those end users because we pulled that session management piece in. Um, so our stack is very basic. We're not. We don't try and we don't pull in exotic technologies. We need everything to be battle tested, and there's enough battle tested services out there that we can do that. Um, which this basically boils down to. You know, we use GCP. We have a Postgres database. Um, and now we are layering on tools from Cloudflare. Uh, with GCP, we're using Google Cloud Run, which will scale out automatically based on the usage. The database doesn't scale out as well, so we're trying to figure out how to... Um, actually, I'm not trying to figure out. We're, we're just working on building, um, separating the user functionality from the session functionality such that they can scale independently. And also, if one goes down, the session management piece is still up and running, so it's not as disastrous. Uh, our like fault points, like if, if GCP has an issue, we are down. Um, same with Cloudflare. But those are the two services that we rely on. And uh, I think that's, you know, it is what it is. I think if Google goes down, you get some leeway. Yeah, nice nice snow day when the, when the cloud providers go down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I would say like, honestly, with a... With the startup, and I feel like that's the easy part of scale, or at least that's been the easy part for us. Um, the harder parts have been have been um, scaling, like support, scaling requests, scaling the team uh, to be able to handle all of these requests. Like uh, we kind of had a very slow start where we had like 
a dozen customers or something. And so if, if there was ever any issues, I would just jump on with that one of those dozen customers and be able to help them out. And I would, you know, aggressively kind of promise things uh, and we'd get it done because there's, you know, I'm going to cater to this particular feature and, and um, it's easy when it's small, but then once you kind of have this like explosion of, of new usages of new usage, you, like the support blows up and your docs aren't perfect and all of these things. And uh, you need to kind of, you can't take that same approach. And it, I think it took us a little bit too long to make that transition. I was still just trying to run around, but you can't run around that fast. You need to kind of take a step back and be like, think about things more holistically. So that's kind of been, I would say the hardest part. And then also um, figuring out how to uh, scale the team. And, you know, there's a ton of, I feel like resources out there talking about this of going from 15 to 50 kind of folks when you're 10 to 15 people, it's really easy just to all communicate and kind of all know what's going on. And then as soon as you hit a certain number, it's uh, kind of a coordination nightmare and, and it can slow things down. So figuring out how to keep that kind of smoothly going is, has been the hardest part of, of scaling. Um, yeah, the tech stuff is, you know, we get to rely on, on these massive companies, Google and Cloudflare, and that's uh, easier than some of the software stuff. Yes, yeah, scaling out people can be hard, especially like for, I can imagine support for such like a technical product is also like a hard, hard nail to hit on the head just because like support representatives need to be technical also to some degree. And I can see how that would be challenging. Yeah, and, and kind of the nature of where we sit at like the, at the intersection of the infrastructure and the product layer means we get questions like we get blamed for all sorts of things that are, aren't our fault. It's like, you know, Next.js or Remix will push something in some version and then something will start working on our end. And it's like, oh, you know, Next.js has this this random bug. We'll, we'll have to work around this one. Um, same with React. I mean, it, it's just like the JavaScript ecosystem in particular moves a lot. And so once you get into the front end and are trying to build like a, a front end first tool, you are pulling on a lot more work. And I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of companies kind of punt here. It's it's a lot harder <laughs> to, to pull in the front end and there's a lot more moving pieces and there's a lot more change. Uh, but it does feel like where API or tools and SaaS companies are, this is the next frontier to provide a lot of value. And we're kind of at the beginning of it, in my opinion. So we've touched on how uh, Clerk is uh, at the core of many businesses, uh, but, and we've talked about how to, how that can enhance your own business, but what about the case where you want to move off of Clerk? Uh, being such at the core of your product, it might seem like impossible to move off of like an authentication provider. So does Clerk, uh, make it easier, provide any tools for, uh, me to switch off of Clerk? We definitely need to work on some of these, uh, tools, uh. First and foremost, like all of your data is yours. We'll just export it, give it to you. Um, however, that is, there's there's a structure to that data and then you need to make that structure work with whatever tool you're going to. And, and that's where the migration becomes non-trivial. Um, not impossible, right? Like we don't, we're, I feel like it's kind of cool to, to be building a company where we're just literally trying to make, I'm trying to make like my own life easier if I was making an app, right? And so that's kind of at the at the basis of everything. And, and we don't want to hold any data hostage. We don't want to make it hard to switch off of Clerk. Uh, that being said, we do provide a lot of crazy, like a lot of more advanced authentication features. So if you do switch off, 
you're either going to have to drop those features or uh, build all that stuff out yourself, which is exactly the pain that we're trying to solve. So I wouldn't say it's fully trivial, but like if you want to export your data and go to like email password authentication, you could do that in a breeze. Um, yeah. yeah, you could even, I mean, even our, our UIs are, are open source. So anything that we have on the front end are open source. I don't think you'd actually be able to realistically, uh, I don't think that would make your life easier. No. I think copying the design there would make your life maybe a little bit easier because yeah. there's like an opinionated design, but trying to use those JavaScript libraries, they're just so embedded, it probably wouldn't help. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of my take, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, this is always an interesting one because it seems very counterintuitive to be like spend engineering hours on how do we like help people not use our product. <laughs> it seems like not the place you want to be. But I mean, the other the flip side of it is like in the reality of the startup world is like it's hard to run a startup and most startups fail. And, you know, when you're making a bet on a startup for an in infrastructural project, something as critical as auth, you know, then it's just like you have to really believe them in them or you have to have some sort of like mitigation plan. And that's, you know, always, always something that, that folks end up having to think about in the back of their head. But Yeah. And, and honestly, like having a, a strong export strategy is something that that's on our roadmap. And really it's to build trust. We want, yeah. Like everything, I, th I feel like everything, there's a lot of stuff in this that is is trust-based and everything we can do to kind of help that and show that, A, we know what we're doing. We think about all the security problems. We are very concerned about reliability um, and we're trying to make this super easy. Having a, a clean export strategy kind of is part of that trust story. So it, it is something that we will spend eng effort on, even though it is kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think... I think trust is so key and so central to the market that you're in. It is like, it is everything. Um, you were, you were saying earlier that, you know, there's a lot of big companies who have internal auth teams. Uh, and, you know, I think one reason is that they trust themselves, you know, to do it. And then that it's harder to, to sort of export that trust. Uh, and also a lot of them are just at a different stage. They started at a different time. And there's two sides to that coin too. It's like Clerk, Auth0, we specialize in the security of this stuff. Yeah. I'm not saying we're better than an internal team at authentication that, you know, but this is all we think about. <laughs> like we have kind of experts spending on this. And, and that's kind of like when you're pulling in a service, that's, that's more or less what you're doing. You're pulling in that expertise, like, can Clerk make a system more reliable than Google Cloud Run that scales horizontally? It's like, no, we're not going to try. We, we trust them to do that. It's a hard dependency, but we trust them to do that. And um, it's a trade-off. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I see it going both ways where people don't trust anyone. Like you know, there's a lot of big banks that probably, well, you know, I think the, the, the take, their take on cloud is definitely softening, but it's not nearly as soft to where they're pulling in uh, kind of a, a third-party auth provider yet. Um, although some of them contradict themselves too, which is always fun. <laughs> On this note, this is like the thing that people are paying for is like both your expertise and the product interfaces and the sort of experience and the time that they'll save and not having to hire a whole team to, to do all this stuff. So there's a, there's a ton of tremendous value being added here. Um, and with that in mind, let's talk about uh, pricing a little bit. So, so pricing is hard. 
um, you know, we had, like I said, we had an episode with Isaac from NPM and, and he was talking about price ops, uh, which is a, a whole thing that I, a whole concept that I'd never heard of, but like even yeah. infrastructure for pricing is hard, but, uh, you know, you are building something in this category where people will have this like trust question, which is, which is real. Uh, but also this is infrastructure that people mostly don't want to build. <laughs> Sometimes they feel like they should build it, but they don't want to build it. So when you are balancing all of these trade-offs, uh, how did you think about pricing? Uh, and, you know, how did that fall out for like different audiences? Like, oh, the indie developer building an app versus like, you know, some larger corporation wanting to, you know, port something to it. It's, uh, it's really hard. And we thought about it, I would say poorly. <laughs> and we're in the process of rethinking about it. It's also one of those things that you can't really iterate on too heavily, just like you need some consistency and, and then how do you heal it, deal with existing customers? Um, and how do you deal with that in the confines of building a business? And also how do you deal with that in the, um, you know, ecosystem of, of venture capital, quite frankly, as well, and, and having to show certain benchmarks depending on where the economy is, because you know they've changed from two years ago to now, and it does force companies to do certain things in different ways. Um, I feel like with Clerk right now, we're kind of lucky in the sense that we have a lot of, of backing in a long runway where we don't necessarily have to think about it about it too hard. Um, the thing that we do need to think about right now is how do we make it more appealing for for people and that really comes down to dropping dropping the price and and having a more generous free tier and really adhering to the the bottom of the market some of the pricing challenges we have are just the different types of businesses like it's it's really easy to call us and and come up with a custom plan that kind of works but like we are dealing with companies that may have a thousand monthly active users and then there are some that have 500,000 to a million monthly active users. So if you're charging per MAU, that makes it really challenging. Um, but also you're trying to build a business and, and show that it can be profitable. So like that company that's getting a ton of value with a thousand MAUs, you still need to make something off of, off of them in order to grow the business and reinvest and double down and provide more value. Um, I think long-term we want to like, we want to provide value in places other than off, um, which will help us keep the cost of off down uh, and, and make it really easy to use, like make it a no brainer for people. An example of that is kind of like uh, is billing. We talked about it being a thorny problem. It is a thorny problem. Uh, it's really hard with the business models and, and all that sort. Uh, at the end of the day, you are charging a user. And if you have, if you're originating that, that user that in that user object, then you can probably in some ways simplify charging that user. Um, and so we'll, we'll be doing that with like a pretty in-depth Stripe integration. Um, today with Stripe, you need to, if you're going to pull in Stripe, uh, Stripe has a duplicate database of all of your users, customers. There are customer IDs and you need to sync your customer ID and your user IDs. When a user gets deleted in your system, you probably want to delete it in your Stripe database and any other services that you're integrating with. Um, when we build a Stripe integration, we'll be able to do that, um, on your behalf, and then we'll be able to expose Stripe's functionality. You know, you'll put in your, your, your Stripe API key and we'll do like 
use expose a user.charge methodology. And for like the B2B SaaS, maybe we'll build out some sort of simple subscription thing and, and see how that goes. Um, if we can do that and kind of provide value there and, and, and it, it would be kind of, and take a, um, uh, like, what am I saying? Uh, yeah, I mean, if we can do that and, and kind of provide value there, then we can charge for that feature and then that can bring the cost of auth down and, and, and it's easier to map that to the, to the customer. But I guess in the short term, what we're going to be doing is uh, dropping the MAU cost, making more transparent tiers uh, such that it kind of works for smaller to bigger companies. With the introduction of this B2B feature set in a bigger way, we'll be able to price differently for B2B companies versus B2C companies, which will, again, it's, that's basically bringing down an MAU cost, which is where we've been failing and have had to cut like special deals with people who unexpectedly grow from zero to like 500,000 MAUs in a month, which is wild. Um, yeah, I mean, it needs to be affordable. It's not, that's the end of the day. And, and we don't want to lose sight of the bottom end of the market and the smallest customers. Um, I think for me, the mantra is always, we're trying to make it easier to build apps and build, build tools for developers. And that starts with the smallest developers. So we never really want to lose sight of that. Uh, other people kind of tackle this in different ways. Like Auth0 has a free plan up to 7,000 MAUs. And then it's like talk to enterprise. And nobody wants to do that. <laughs> like Developers don't want to do that. <laughs> and they don't want to get like 10x when that happens. So how do you make it like a kind of a gradual thing and, and provide value for the cost? And it, it's a tough trade-off. It's, it's hard. Uh, yeah. So what, what you said, like, it's interesting. Like, it seems like clerk is moving, like the first initial value prop was auth as a service, but from what you're saying, it feels like the user is really the service now. And auth is just like a feature of that user. And it's like, how can we like bring in as many of like the useful user functionalities into clerk that makes it easy to build out nice user services? Yeah. And organizations is, is arguably the first additive feature there um billing and charging a user is going to be another additive feature that uh we're going to kind of dip our toes into i would say um but there's there's a lot i mean the user dashboard is kind of the one that i'm like i'm personally really excited about i really want to build it out it's like you just have this easy to use dashboard where you can go and see all of your users uh see their uh see all of their actions because um like an audit logging type thing is, is kind of in our future as well a big part of that are, are all these security things. And so it's, uh, it's a natural extension, but, um, one of the cooler features that we have in clerk that is super valuable is, is user impersonation. So out of, out of the box, you implement, you integrate clerk, you can then sign in as your users and see what they're seeing. Um, a lot of companies build this out for the support team. It's always kind of hairy. It touches the session object, the user object. It needs to be audit log itself. You need to have controls around who can do it. Um, and that is a cool feature. I don't know. <laughs> That's like that was one of the cooler features up there with the the multi the multi session stuff. Those are like my two kind of like favorite ones. And I think it just kind of shows the power of the abstraction that we have and where we can kind of go with it. Um, extending the user object itself is is super interesting. And we talked a little bit about billing. That's that's a user action. But then like being able to do like user dot credit cards and even though they're maybe at the end of the day stored in in stripe with kind of all the 
PCI compliance over there, you can still access it off of that simple clerk user dot credit cards and they're just right there. Um, it's a, yeah, no, I'm excited about the extensions and the user object as, as kind of an insertion point for being able to make other things a lot easier to do as a developer. Yeah, all those things harken back to the like, it's a scary thing to do, even thinking about like creating a button that lets my support people log in as another user seems like a can of worms. It's like an overwhelming thing, but to have a service that goes like, oh, that's just a feature and we are experts at auth. So, you know, this feature will work how you want it to work is chef's kiss. <laughs> yep. And, and uh, it's funny how many of these things like felt like they were unlocked by pulling in that session management piece. Um, and yeah, it's, it's cool. Okay, uh, so, so one question I've been enjoying asking uh, all our guests that come on the show uh, is a fun one that's been making the rounds on Twitter. What's your spiciest dev take? Ooh, it's a dangerous one. Yeah, very fun. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I probably have a few. I, I think I'm more of a, uh, I guess as a developer, when I'm kind of making things, I prefer simplicity. Maybe that's not too spicy. I feel like it's probably spicier. Like, I, I think I prefer simplicity and more procedural. And like when I tried to learn Rails at one point, I was frustrated by the amount of things happening behind the scenes that I didn't know about, couldn't control and weren't like shown to me kind of. And then with like Golang, I can just like look at the code and I can click into it and I can see everything and I can procedurally figure out exactly what's happening. Uh, that might just be how like my brain kind of works. And maybe I don't have enough foundation for other types of working or other types of frameworks and, and, uh, I prefer to like start with simple and then build up from there. It's not super spicy. Um, I guess another one that, that kind of comes up a lot, especially with Clerk, is open source versus kind of closed source. Um, I feel like they're like companies switch between open source and closed source all the time. And I feel like a lot of companies use open source as just because they think it looks good and they're really hamstringing it on purpose to the point where it's just marketing speak. Like it's literally like just for, uh, just for show. And I'm not a huge fan of that personally. Like I like when things are, are what they say they are and aren't trying to disguise themselves, disguise themselves in another way. So, I mean, with Clerk, it's like all of our front ends are open source. You can look at them, you can use them, but the back end is not. And, um, that's where, we're providing value and, and to, to open source it, it feels like it would be kind of disingenuous because at the end of the day, we are working on building a business and uh, it's also an easier way to provide value because you don't need to um, kind of think about the implications of, of having that additional structure in your build process. Yeah, that, that one hits home like recently, like yesterday. I don't know if I want to name names, uh, <laughs> but... Uh... So a popular testing library yesterday made it so that uh, like they are open source, but if you install any of their, like if you install any open source alternatives to their dashboard, it completely just fails the process. So it's like open source, but like not really. So it's like, it feels like it falls in that category of like, yeah, we're open source. We'll take your free work, but not really. It's like, if you want to build something cool off of us, good luck. If it competes, it's not a thing we'll allow. So it's like, uh There's been, I feel like, a bunch of stories. And Amazon really kicked off, I feel like, this combo in a big way a while ago about just, like, I forget what, what the origin of it was, but it's, like, some 
very popular tool was open source and Amazon took that open source code and then hosted it. And Elasticsearch versus now OpenSearch. Yeah. And obviously that's not exactly what your intentions were, but it's what you spelled out and it, it sucks. So it's like yeah. now they're having to backtrack and maybe there's some model where of like, oh, if you're a company of X size, then you can't use it, but we want to support other folks that are smaller. I don't know. It, it gets really dicey and I, I prefer it to just be clear about your intentions. <laughs> and I think there are a lot of open source companies that's, that are like, uh, but it's, it's in that middle ground where I'm like, eh, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are, we, we talk a lot about open source businesses and, and if you're making a product that is fully open source and you're trying to monetize it, then you get into some tricky gray area. You do. So, you know, we've had a bunch of license changes over the years. So folks like Mongo, for example, was a very famous license change. Of course, uh, Elastic changed their license uh, because Amazon was hosting it, and that calls Amazon to fork to open search or whatever. And, you know, that's something that a big competitor can come and do, like, pretty easily is, like, if you have everything open source. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it's hard. It's hard. Artsy had the same model of, like, all the things around the product that, we don't really care about, well, not that we don't care about, but like aren't necessarily like the value add. So it's like the website was open source and like all of our tooling was open source. Even the app was open source, but like the thing that was like really, you know, the actual business logic for like dealing with galleries or like, you know, doing all the really, you know, deep, interesting, valuable stuff that was just like closed source. And, and I think that's a, that's a good trade-off to strike. Uh, if you're going to open source something, be you know, genuine in that, and then also be open for people to use it and yeah. do things with it, you know, or make sure you like do the correct licensing or think about licensing really early on. So if you want people to not to make a, you know, proprietary commercial product out of it, it's like, yeah, be clear. <laughs> and then there are always parts where you can contribute in a, in a genuine way and be like, this is, we want everyone to be using this part of, of kind of the open source and it doesn't, yeah. And we can still have a sustainable business at, at the end of the day, which is, un, I don't know if it's unfortunate, but it is one of the realities of, you know, building tools for other people. Um, if it's not sustainable, it's going to, like, you won't be able to continue on it. And it's kind of sees the end of, of it is. And, and yeah, it's just, it's tough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with that, let's move on to tool tips. Okay, my first tooltip of the week is a project called Rivet. Uh, a few podcasts ago, I shared uh, another AI tool called Comfy UI, which lets you use a node-based editor to like create image creation pipelines. Uh, this is the same thing, but for LLM pipelines. So you can create this big, nice like uh, node-based graph and create prompts from uh, editing that graph. Uh, I haven't used this much myself, but I find these visual programming languages really fun to mess around with and to like start understanding the the concepts of the technology you're playing around with. So if you wanted to mess around with LLMs and like making them do more complex things based off of maybe state or like flows through a graph, this would definitely be a project to check out because I don't really think there's anything else like it at the moment. I had a friend uh, ask me to help them find some some open source fonts and I was just browsing github which has lately become my favorite place to look for fonts because you find some really interesting things so there is this font called zero x proto 
Uh, it's in the OX type uh, organization. Uh, and it's a really nice technical font. Uh, so it's it's sort of labeled as like a, a programming font or whatever. Um, but I don't know. It has a really nice look to it. Uh, I kind of uh, like not everything is like super straight and super hard edges. It's kind of like a little bubbly in, in a way. And I don't know. It looks nice. So if you're looking for another open source font and you're wanting to, to play around with some new fonts, then definitely check this one out. I like that they call out that the way they differentiate their characters could lead to less software bugs. That's a it's a fun fun claim to make in the readme of a programming font. <laughs> the characters look different. <laughs> yeah, no more I L one confusion. Yeah. I do feel like for whatever reason, like loop characters are like M and N and like I and J. Like I don't know how that happened, but it's the ones that look most alike. <laughs> Next up, we have Resend. Yeah, this is a, you know, I guess, as a developer tool, I love other developer tools. And look at that beautiful Ruby That's scheme. That's nice. <laughs> I see why Y Combinator backed him. Design on point, but also email is painful. And I, I think they uh, have a really promising take on, on, on simplifying. So it's just like a, a, a nice, easy, simple API to send email within your app? Yeah, that's, I, I guess, like kind of like what you wish SendGrid was, if you've ever tried to use SendGrid. Yeah, I I honestly love I love the unbundling of like these larger initiatives into you know these dedicated products that do it really well. So so this is cool. Clerky's cool. I love seeing the things that I've spent time and pain on <laughs> that I didn't care about turned into products where I can pay somebody to care about it for me. It's awesome. <laughs> Keeping on the email train, this is a project that popped up on my feed recently called JSX Email. It lets you build emails with JSX. Uh, who would have guessed? Uh, but it's it provides a bunch of like uh, components that you can use to build out your emails. So it has like a body, uh, headings, and all of that. And it just makes it really easy to style and send customized emails while writing what feels like React. So if you've ever been looking for something, I'd definitely give this a look. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's from Shellscape, who's a maintainer of of Rollup and a bunch of other packages in the ecosystem. So definitely quality. Definitely check it out if you've ever had the need. Does this use MJML under the hood? I have not looked at the dependencies. <laughs> I haven't gone that deep on this one yet. <laughs> MJML is like the classic uh, markup for... Um email thing it must like it has all these components like i don't imagine why you would need a heading component for h1s through sixes if you weren't going to some other type of format so sure yeah, yeah. probably built on it then last up we have skewed which is actually from a coworker of mine so skewed is a library that's written in typescript that uh takes uh 3D model and then transforms it into SVG. Uh, and it can do it in real time. Uh, and it it has constraints on how it renders it. So uh, it's orthographic projection uh, is is the only sort of way to, to do that. So it's like architectural models maybe, or maybe like furniture or something, if you're, or, or like an isometric game, I guess. Uh, but um, it's it's really cool. I, I love seeing this sort of thing. I mean, like, I don't know. That's SVG, yo. <laughs> That's crazy. 
like a demo of a, a light run, like moving around a bunch of primitives and like doing dynamic shadows and lighting and everything. It's like, it's all 2D, yo. Yeah, and, and Francois has just been doing this in his free time for fun. <laughs> There's no reason he's doing this. <laughs> he's just doing it. Yeah, if you if you want to follow along with the development too, uh, follow his Twitter account, Selfless. Uh, he posts lots of updates about him working through various problems and trying to implement like various shaders in this. Like in the example he shows on the website, this is like realistic shading, but he's also has shaders for like cartoon shading and a bunch of other different things. Cool. With that, that's tool tips for the week. Thanks for coming on, Braden. This was uh, a fun delve into auth and really all things users. So thanks for coming on and enlightening us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was awesome to have you on. Uh, really love to see Clerk continue to grow. Uh, it's an awesome product, and it's been getting a lot of love lately, and we're glad to have you on. Mm-hmm.